This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Michael Bizet, author of the poetry collection, The Echo Chamber. I was talking to my students today in class. I always tell them that my million dollar idea is going to be a watch that has like a beautiful face with a little glass window, the nice leather band, very old school, and really cheap to make because it has no inner workings. And it just has the word now printed across where the hands would be. And I would just bill it as the most accurate clock in the world. We'll be back with Michael Bazette after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, 
But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is teacher and poet Michael Bazette. His poetry collections include The Interrogation, The Temple, and The Echo Chamber, among others. He is also the translator of the Popol Vuh, the first English verse translation of the Mayan creation epic, which was named one of the New York Times Best Books of 2018. He is a longtime faculty member at the Blake School. Bazette has received the Bechdel Prize from Teachers and Writers Collaborative and is a 2017 National Endowment for the Arts Fellow. He lives in Minneapolis. His new collection, The Echo Chamber, examines our self-referential age of selfies and televised wars and manufactured celebrity and gazing into the damage it can produce and the truth it obscures beneath the surface. The collection is searing, compassionate, and humorous and looks at our humanity from mythical figures to modern-day individuals. We began the discussion with me asking Michael Bazette this question. So in this collection, The Echo Chamber, I felt like there were some overarching themes or ideas that you were mulling over in many of these poems. I guess the biggest one for me had to do with time. Another few had to do with kind of like our most basic animal nature, the idea of silence and and oblivion. Um meaning like our disappearance eventually from the earth. Um, and there was a lot of uh, reference to Greek mythology and um, animals and, and a sense of urbanness. D- that was a lot to lay on you, but does that sound like I read the book you wrote? Yeah, very accurately, I'd say. I mean, a working title of the book in my mind for a while was Appetite. You know, which I think converges with a number of the things you're saying, the basic animal nature, you know, the drives. I think the Greek myths are very much a study. I sometimes think of the Greek gods as just human biology made into overarching figureheads. You know, our worst, most base urges, our most beautiful drives and desires. And that's what rules us, you know, and then we put it on Olympus and we call 
what we'd probably call now evolutionary biology, we call it fate, or, you know, um, so that's definitely something I was thinking about. And I think that silence or the oblivion, it just comes from living in a world that's rapidly changing, especially, you know, seeing how the narrative or myth of capitalism has run, you know, with its, its kind of its story of endless growth, you know, for the last four or 500 years, which anyone would know that a story based on endless growth <laughs> in literary terms would not be sustainable, you know, and the story of, of the natural world is always been equilibrium and balance, a living balance, you know, and sustainability is a part of a cycle that and as long as you're inside that cycle, it will be here forever. And I feel like those two narratives collided and nature will win out, but it might create a huge silence in its wake, a human silence, you know, um, down the road. And I think it's just something I think about. And what was the first thing? <laughs> the first thing was time. Oh, yeah. Well, I that is something I think about a lot. It's funny. I was talking to my students today in class. I always tell them that my million-dollar idea is going to be a watch that has, like, a beautiful face with a little glass window, the nice leather band, very old school, and really cheap to make because it has no inner workings. And it just has the word now printed across where the hands would be. And I would just bill it as the most accurate clock in the world. <laughs> you get off a plane in Shanghai, you don't have to reset it. Um, I've always been really taken with that idea that as human beings, we're completely and eternally residing in the present moment. Whether we want to be or not, our consciousness is casting forward and back. Um, and that, I think, you, if I put that beside this idea of like personal memory, but then collective mythic narrative history and how both of those two things play out. I'm really interested at the, that kind of intersection point, I would say, which is why I think I'm drawn to myth. I think as humans, we are creatures that inhabit narrative. Sometimes at the expense of like, we can have inhabit those symbolic frameworks in a way that becomes more real than the actual like spaces that we're inside, you know, the world that we're living in. Yeah, I felt like the the passage of time and our mortality was really, really present. And I was thinking maybe it might be helpful to start with a poem. How about I travel back in time? I travel back in time. I travel back in time to find a woman by a pond. Embroidery hoop in hand, her needle dipping and rising like a dolphin as she handcrafts a selfie. She inclines herself to ponder her image in the water, then chooses a bit of wool to catch the light that flecks her eye. Wow, I say, awesome. She blushes and says, prithee, good sir, speak not of what inspires awe here beside this humble pond, whilst I dabble with my cloth and cord, imperfect as I am. Whatever, I say. It's all good. This is how I study history. I go there. I see the sights and smell the smells, which often entail fresh dung, spring rain, and copious animal odors. Needlework done, she will hang it on the chestnut trees that line the lane beside her home. I encourage her to do this as a sort of 
status update to let folks know she's looking good and living her best life. Phrases I have brought her as mantras from the future where we are fully committed to such things. Over time, people will learn to drop rose petals in the basket beneath her image to indicate their approval. And she will finally be able to count them up to see how much she's worth. You know, this poem is definitely making fun of the selfie Facebook approval from others kind of thing in a world before that all happened. Tell me a little bit about what you were thinking about when you started writing this. Well, I mean, obviously the myth of Narcissus is pretty old, <laughs> you know, and um, thinking about it in a way as a template for original selfie culture, where you get into a feedback loop where really what you want to see is different versions and reflections of yourself. It's such a perfect story to think not just about social media, but the algorithms underneath it and how really at the end of the day, we're the product that's being sold back to us. And that puts us in echo chambers, you know, which is perfect because Narcissus and Echo were the famous mismatched never to be couple. And I think it's really that the myth, those stories led me to thinking about how those two things kind of intersect and come together. And also as an extremely late adopter of social media myself, I didn't do anything until um, my first book didn't come out till I was 48. And I had been um, I'd never had a Facebook account. I'd never been on Instagram. Um, I'd never, I'd never done anything. And the concept of trying to map like in some real way or measure social interactions, I felt was a little bit like throwing a lasso around a cloud. And the idea of having a status update, I used to think like I could just, you know, put it on paint it on plywood and put it in my front yard, you know, <laughs> people could drive by and see what I had to say. It's just, there was something about actualizing it and making it live in the physical world um, that suddenly brought, uh, I don't know, a quaintness to it, a beauty, a sadness. Um, there are also ways, you're right, it's definitely poking fun. Um, but, you know, I think there's also some, some tenderness in a poem where this woman is taking the time so slowly to be making the self-portrait, you know, um, by hand. And I don't think that everything about the impulse is necessarily negative. I think it's the fact that it's something that's essentially human. And frankly, capitalism's gotten really good at tethering it and capturing it and using it in essence. Um, that is what makes it potentially really problematic. Let's talk a little bit more about the title, The Echo Chamber. I mean, you had mentioned Narcissus, which he appears in several of these poems, and that idea of staring at yourself into a mirror. Are there other things you were thinking about it when you decided that was the title? Well, I mean, obviously, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot given the current media moment that we live in and how that we can all be inside our self-reinforced narratives, you know? Um, and most, a lot of social media feeds are really good at doing this. They just mirror back things that we want to see, you know, where media is not information or connection, it's product. And it's something that's become commodified. And of course, over time that starts to, was it Marshall McLuhan who said, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. 
you know, and I think about the really bifurcated polarized moment that we're in, and it's because people are literally inhabiting different realities, constructed of different facts and different sets of information. And we've lost the Venn diagram, you know, that I think is necessary to have the messiness of like democracy, I think. So that's one thing I was thinking about. But I also have really like Echo as a character, everybody knows Narcissus, but she's wonderful. She's fascinating, you know, and tragic and kind of heartbreaking. And she had been cursed to only repeat the last words she'd heard before she even met Narcissus. You know, she had kind of covered for Zeus. Zeus had very problematic relationships with women. And um, she, I think, was talking to Hera because um, Zeus's wife, who had could be quite vindictive because she couldn't do anything to her husband, she would take it out on the women that Zeus had been with. And so Echo, in a protective act for one of her compadres, was delaying Hera. Hera realized it, figured it out, and it said, oh, you used your tongue to basically um, defend my husband, and now you have lost a voice of your own, and all you can become is basically this verbal mirror. Um, and so it was a curse that was put on her by a woman, and a woman that was invested in a way in patriarchy. I mean, completely, she's the goddess of marriage, right? Um, and she's married to this, this philandering rapist. It seems on a certain level that someone who can only repeat someone's words back to them, like she should have been the perfect woman for Narcissus, this guy who was pretty so into himself, you know, so it's a really it's a pretty good setup for like an ABC after school special, you know, um, and you think that these two folks are going to get together and become, you know, if not happily ever after, at least codependent. And it's just so interesting that he rejects her so soundly and, and so sad that that complete loss of voice also results in essence in a loss of body and disappearance and just total erasure. Um, so I, in fact, I wrote a lot of echo poems that are also in the book, but but many that didn't make it in. In fact, I, I almost had a poem in the book where I said, you know, the echoes press conference, you know, and it was um, just going to be that as a title and then two blank pages. <laughs> I thought I kind of probably couldn't justify that much white space with just a title. But so there you go. You've got a conceptual poem. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would think that that narcissist and Echo would be a, a big match on Tinder. Yeah. <laughs> There's a poem in here that stuck out to me as being kind of different than any other poem in here. It seemed, it felt to me when I read it, much more grounded, perhaps in your life, but definitely grounded in terms of... Um, maybe being more realistic, which is called at 50. I'm wondering. I knew, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you can read it. I would be delighted to. At 50. My children are beautiful. They grow away from me like new shoots from a storm cleave tree. And I am dying. It only sounds like a hackneyed melodrama, because it is. I cry openly when my son slips onto his bicycle and spins into the world. 
We used to ride together all these mornings. He pedaled the trailer bike, chattering, my little outboard motor, then his own. He exulted in the balance, the speed. The days are far too long, the years quick as a whisper. My wife just smiles and shakes her head at the softness of a man who has never held a separate heartbeat in his body. She indulges no illusions. There's no escaping the echoing hallway in the temple. There's a reason it's built from ossified bone, leaving teeth in gold bands, maybe one incongruous strand of hair. But this is hardly a rant about death. It's too in love with life leaving us on a bicycle, strangely tall now, suddenly handsome, not once looking back. What would you like to share about this? You're right that it does have a different, or maybe it's it's the furthest edge of the spectrum of this energy, you know, a tender, open, honest, vulnerable energy, where the book is using certainly lots of layers of irony and, and much of it um, is recasting and retelling stories. And this anecdote is, it happened on my 50th birthday, and um, which is what, five years ago now. So, um and the boy who it's about, who was 13 then, is now, you know, a freshman in college. He's continued on his path. But I found a strange thing kind of happened when I went into retelling the myth of Echo and Narcissus and how much I kept sliding into the perspective of his mother and what it must have been like for her to have a son and be told the strange cryptic prophecy she was told by Tiresias about her son when she said, will he be happy? And he said, if he knows himself, not. And there was that pause and you can't know quite how to read that. You know, it's, I put a dash in, you know, to punctuate it. But I really, um, it ended up being her poem as much as anybody's I think in the way that I told it and I found myself thinking a lot too about how children are a mirror they're a mirror of us when they say things that you said back to you when they um are standing a certain way or they you you hear them say a phrase in anger that you know a hundred percent is just an echo of something that you had said when they were a child um and it's a different kind of mirror but it's a very powerful one you know i i used to always say kids are really relentless calendars you know i've always thought about them in terms of time and how much they can accelerate and slow down time but i think it ended up being in the collection when it did after that point was because it just really does serve as a mirror, but also I think, yeah, tether and ground. I like that verb. I think it is grounding to the poem, just to remind us all that we're talking about real people um, and with real stakes and real love and real loss and grief, um, even in the midst of that love. I think too, that sometimes the most prosaic moments that seem like I mean not a hundred percent but a little bit like a throwaway moment like your your boy riding his bike down the street which he does probably hundreds of times that one time it just hits you and like your whole body just feels 
this sense of like mortality and grasping and love and like this urgency to like, oh my gosh, like this is all I get on this earth. And yeah. you, you feel it so deeply. Yeah. Your bones turn to water, you know, in those moments. And it's really, it's, it's really something. Um, I think you feel the passage of time and uh, suddenly how quickly you can become irrelevant um, or at least feel that way. It was a hell of a birthday gift (laughs) (laughs) to have it all come together. I think there's some nostalgia in there too. Yeah, I would agree. I was reading a book about nostalgia and it was, it was talking about nostalgia like as a place that you've never been that you want to go back to. Mm -hmm. And it's like such a pure longing sometimes to have all these feelings. I I don't know if that makes sense for you. Sure. It does. And I feel that that can really be heightened by parenthood because you're always learning on the job. And as soon as you might feel like you get a handle on a certain age, it's gone, you know? So that longing is, um, also happening in real time, you know, and you're, you're always parenting yourself as well. And you're inhabiting the voices and modes of your parents. You know, there's a lot of kind of collapsing of different frames of reference that happens in those moments. Um, But I think there is a longing to return to this place, this pure, lovely place that might not have resided in this world. (laughs) You just feel it in your body. Can you read career day? Career day. Any questions I ask? After my brief lesson on how to field dress a hair with one slit from neck to hip, I've draped the body on a wooden drying rack at the front of the classroom, and it is dripping onto the towels I have laid beneath, dark towels to avoid stains. The children are quiet. Oh, come on, I say. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Just stupid people. Finally, one girl raises her hand. Can you tell us where the mind ends and the world begins? Ah, a philosopher, I say, playfully brandishing the freshly cleaned blade before I wipe it once more on my corduroys. Well, I don't know the answer to your question, but I'm going to keep talking because I am a grown-up at the front of a classroom. And you, little girl, what was your name again? I don't have one, she says. I was a wild hare until just a few minutes ago. So who is this teacher who's slitting a hair from the neck to the hip? Well, in my mind, I think it's a wayward parent who hasn't calibrated the moment. You know, I'd like that, you know, the, the whole notion of career day when like, it's kind of a trope I like, like, um, it's actually an SNL skit where Adam Driver is a uh, an oil magnet who like comes into class and it's like, what do you do? He's like, I crush my enemies to dust and, you know, this kind of thing. And um, I hadn't, I actually just saw it uh, a few months ago after the poem came out, but I've always loved the idea of adults coming into school and saying, here's what I do and thinking so many adult jobs in ways are not. <laughs> not calibrated, you know? Um, and so like, okay, what if this person is a, like a fur trapper or hunter, you know? And so here they are thinking, here's a good life skill, knowing how to field dress a hair. Um, 
And it was kind of the convergence of that and a certain teaching persona that just, yeah, adults talk too much when they're in roomfuls of children. Um, and I read a lot of Ovid for this, obviously, because he's one of the great sources on echo and narcissus. And I really would rem remembered in rereading all these different translations of Ovid, how much I love the moments of transformation. You know, when someone is walking along and suddenly their legs begin to lengthen and antlers start to sprout out the crown of their skull. And um, I don't know, it just ended up being this weird mashup. The poem came quite quickly out of the career day moment where I suddenly realized that wild hair was going to come back for a visit. Because the girl at the end, you know, he says, what's your name? And she says, I don't have one. She says, I was a wild hare until a few minutes ago, which, which sort of brought me to this idea. Uh, one of them, this is looking at it a little sideways. This is, it isn't an exact example of, of oblivion of that. We, we can become nothing in a way. Does that make yeah. sense to you? Yeah, no, it does. I mean, that idea too, of like, yeah, being transported. I mean, I think in some ways we become nothing when we read. We disappear. We forget we have bodies. We quit noticing the passage of time. You know, I remember as a kid, those moments when I would be completely lost in a book and look up and the sun had set. And I would just be like, what, where did, what, where did the day go? And where did I go, really? You know, uh, for hours, I was unaware of even having a body. I guess that's the right kind of oblivion. <laughs> uh, a transporting oblivion. I think there's other examples of it, like in your poem menu, which is where these people are are eating while like the world burns, basically. Like there's war going on, and and you'll you're saying to them like, here's a really nice table to watch the war from, and you know they're they're describing these beautiful foods like the shaved cabbage is a welcome bit of structure and a light Chardonnay to accompany the drones hovering in over the desert. And so it's like this mixture of this fine meal and this great uh, setting to watch the world blow up, basically. And there is sort of a sort of disappearance there that we all do every day, kind of amidst our privilege that we can disappear into our privilege and not see what's going on in the world. And at the same time, if we let everything going on in the world, we'd probably be in us. We'd be like in tears, like not able to move. And that's what this poem brought to me. I think that's dead on. I love that reading. I think it's, it's very much an energy that's underneath it. And I think you're right that if we, we're fully permeable and sensitive and considered all the information that is now brought to us just by flipping on NPR at the end of the day, you know, we'd be completely frozen and paralyzed with anxiety and empathy and all the things that would be happening, you know, and yet there is that doubleness of, and oh my God, it's like, were there days when I was blissfully happy during um, the Trump administration? There were, you know, that doubleness exists. That was there were many ways in which I'd look at that and think about that. And by all measures, it was a horrific four years for America. Um, and yet we live these lives. Um, 
Shamborska has that great line, like, uh, forgive me distant wars for bringing flowers home. And I think it comes from a very similar energy um, where life must go on. There's a certain nobility and joy and laughter and uh, even a certain amount of like resistance and just persisting in those elements. But in this particular, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm taking it to a point in the menu to show too that level of oblivion and privilege can be incredibly potentially damaging, partially because it's seductive, you know? We do have these appetites and when they get fed, we feel content and self-satisfied. Um, there's kind of no getting around that. Uh, tell me about the procedure. If you want to read it, you can. It's a little bit of a longer one or we can just talk about it. You know, I'd be happy to read it. I actually, it's funny, I've been reading from the book a fair amount, but that's one that I haven't read. So yeah, if you don't mind. Yeah, I would love if you read it because there, I was not quite sure what was going on in there. So you can enlighten me. Marvelous. The procedure. It is over almost before it begins. The blade drawn quick across the throat, air exhaling softly from the trachea as the body slackens into its final posture. The mouth gapes, the lips pucker into the meditative O of a sunfish held snug as you work to free the hook. Morphine made the sleep deep, and though dark blood soaks the mattress, there is an air of release, if not relief. Later, when the body awakens, pale and drained, yet saying it feels lighter, the gods explain that the man inside the body is lighter. More than a gallon empties out, they say with a smile. That's 12 and a half pounds you won't have to carry around anymore. And what about this, he asks, gently tracing the slit in his windpipe with one finger. Turtlenecks for a week, and then it closes on its own. Just don't let anything slip inside until then, they say with a laugh. He smiles faintly, takes the pen and clipboard they offer to sign the release. So pretty much anything goes now, right? Bacon, single malt, cigarettes, heroin, meth. Get ready to consume, they say. You can drink a goblet of melted butter if you want. The man signs his name with a curly cue, hands back the pen. My fingers are so white, he says, almost translucent like those weird fish that live in caves. Honestly, one God says, you couldn't be more white than you are right now. Your body has been finally relieved of duty, all the trouble drained away. The man nods, then smiles and says, so how long until my appetite returns? So who is this guy? I think this is a guy kind of like in that myth about the guy who said he wanted to live forever, but forgot to also ask for eternal youth. So his body continued to age and ossify and he became just, and he ended up begging the gods to end. They said, sorry, we can't undo it. Um, and it's like, I want to be able to consume anything. And it's like, so I think of this procedure, this draining where he's now this kind of walking ghost zombie, he's got a body, but, and of course, if you're going to be able to consume bacon, single, single malt, cigarettes, heroin, meth, uh, without any consequences, 
um, it would seem like on a certain level, like this fanciful dream of appetite, but he just wanted to be able to consume anything. I guess he forgot to also ask for appetite to come along with that. You know, I think um, it's, it's in a weird way, the convergence poem, the, the photo negative of the menu where you're talking about privilege on a certain level. And I'm playing around with the end too, in terms of not the first person to do this, but that's idea of whiteness being drained of all color. And, you know, that idea of being relieved of duty and um, how that mode of privilege is ultimately so damaging to whiteness as a construct, as well as to all the things that whiteness marginalizes, you know, it's none of these things are ever good for anybody. So, um, I think, I guess that's what I was thinking about there. And this idea of just making it very literal. So it is a procedure that you can undergo. It also seems like one of your poems where there is no appetite. I mean, you said the word appetite in the beginning in terms of some themes running through this. And this is one of the few characters or situations where people aren't wanting some kind of more. I like that idea of, and there's a few poems that do this, but just of the straight man, you know, existing in a world of jokes or in a world of tension or in a world of desire, kind of a Chauncey Gardner character from being there, you know, um, I just think that that's both on this one level seems really vanilla and boring, but also potentially super transcendent, you know, to just be to not yeah have appetite or desire and how liberating that that could be. So that question at the end is both punchline, but also kind of innocent, you know, <laughs> at least to my ears. Yeah, I thought a lot of these poems also had like almost like a Zen koan type riddle to them where maybe you have people that go to a play and they have to pay extra for the punchline and the punchline is a blank or a comedian's on the stage and he sort of disappears where there's some kind of like higher spiritual sense of emptiness, which in, in a way is, is really different than the idea of disappearance and oblivion. Yeah, I think it's a transcendent disappearance. It's it's uh, it's the um, what's happened is the boundaries of the self have dissolved. You know, it's the old joke, the Buddhist monk, you know, what did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor in New York City? Make me one with everything. You know, and it's just so the, you know, so you've lost yourself, but you've gained potentially um, a transcendence, you know, or a transcendent nothingness. I'm not quite sure. Um, I'm a pretty casual half-assed Buddhist, but it was, it's, it was kind of the natural progression after what, 12 to 13 years of Catholic schooling. So I did spend a fair amount of time with it. Um, and it does, I think that Cohen paradox, I think is a very good way to get outside of overtly linear thinking or dialectics, you know, and that's, that's something I definitely like to do with, with poetry. And what, what is the role of comedy in your life? Um, that's a good question. I love stand-up comedy and, and studying joke structures. And, um, I actually just, it was a few years ago that I started to realize that I think like 
how into Steve Martin's comedy I was in seventh and eighth grade in junior high. I think it was a huge influence on um, the uh, on me as a poet. You know, his book Cruel Shoes, which in some ways is a bunch of absurdist stories and strange moments. And he he actually said something along the lines of amusing in um, I think born standing up where he was saying like what if there was no punchline in a joke what if the tension just hung and hung and hung it very much it was an idea that sort of bled into the comedian um that poem that you referenced but where at a certain point an audience would be forced to start laughing just to relieve the tension but it wouldn't be everyone doing it together and the fact that a formal you know, a, a form like the joke is just as formalist as a poem is. And that by having people then start to laugh at certain awkward moments, they're owning that laughter and they're choosing when they're laughing in a very different way. You know, James Wright was huge for me. I ran into him early in college and uh, that poem, A Blessing, where he actually says, you know, standing in a field outside Rochester, Minnesota, and I'd grown up in Rochester, Minnesota, which I thought was one of the most resolutely unpoetic towns on the face of the planet. Um, and then I read this poem, and it just completely did take off the top of my head, you know, that ending, um, when he said, you know, and I could break into blossom, you know, it's so unexpected, yet so perfect. And, um, it lands for me the way a punchline does. It has surprise and recognition in the same moment. Or lying in a hammock at William Duffy's farm. I have wasted my life. The final line of that poem. And I think a lot of lyric poetry does that. But instead of the comic explosion of a punchline, you get this lyric implosion where you like feel the concussion, but it goes inward. It's the energy is just uh, directed in a different way. And I love that. I love that Shakespeare often has comic scenes right before the most tragic stuff. He's just loosening up the abdominal mus muscles with a little laughter so that then the emotion can find its way in even deeper. Are there any other poems you want to talk about before I get to the final? Well, actually, you know, there's one that I've read a number of times that I think it might be worth reflecting Inside the Trojan Horse, I don't think I even realized this fully when I wrote it, but the repurposing of that telling of it was just a completely a response to the 2016 election. That idea of what you invite in to kind of the sacred temple, what you invite into your city, you know, thinking about Cassandra, thinking about how much they love their stallions, how this gift was made in the image of themselves, and how that notion, there were so many people saying in the wake of that election, and then in the years that followed, like, this is not who we are. There was this part of me always wanting to say, well, it is, you know, we, this is who we are, you know, um, and really honestly reflecting back to us that, yeah, this is who we are. This is who this country elected um, in a free and fair election, this, you know, as far as we all know. And there's still a ton of support for this guy. Um, this is who we led into the temple. Um, Let's have you read it, if you don't mind. Do you, do you think it would be useful in terms of hearing it? Would you mind reading kind of the Greek chorus question parts? Here we go. <laughs> you are now officially 
the yeah it's weird i guess it's a greek chorus but the voice is actually of the trojan so i don't know really where this voice is coming from inside the trojan horse and why a horse we loved our horses the velvet of their noses the knowing in their eyes our broken stallions nuzzled us and we dreamed of drumming an unbroken land braided with rivers so long infested with invaders and where did the invaders lie in an unworded silence in the stifling interior in the belly of the animal and why appetite and why it is always only appetite and if if we had built our buildings as ruins it would have saved us so much time and how thin was our hope thinner than the skin on milk as it cools thinner than the lilac vein lids of a newborn's eyes and how many of them were inside few enough that they kept their mouths shut more than enough to shut ours and of course they opened the gates and how many of them were outside thousands they crawled the beach on a moonless night like turtles in their armor shreds of wool were tucked in the hinges to deaden any clanking the wet sand ate the sound and what did they carry a 10-year aching blue bald rage and what did they do what cannot be undone and what did they do they discovered how high you can fling a baby they discovered the sound it makes when it lands and where did the invaders lie among us even as we celebrated drinking wine deep into the night they were always there among us and where did the invaders lie deep in the courtyard of the sacred temple and who put them there we did who put them there we did do you want to say anything else about it i think no okay that's fine <laughs> can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer i went to danny champion of the world by roald dahl had to revisit robinson crusoe <laughs> went to the end of 100 years of solitude by gabriel garcia marquez but i kept returning to this poem by vislava uh, samborska it's called clouds i'd have to be really quick to describe clouds a split seconds enough for them to start being something else their trademark they don't repeat a single shape shade pose arrangement unburdened by memory of any kind they float easily over the facts what on earth could they bear witness to they scatter whenever something happens compared to clouds life rests on solid ground practically permanent almost eternal next to clouds even a stone seems like a brother someone you can trust while they're just distant flighty cousins let people exist if they want and then die one after another clouds simply don't care what they're up to down there and so their haughty feet cruise smoothly over your whole life and mine still incomplete they aren't obliged to vanish when we're gone 
they don't have to be seen while sailing on. Do you want to say anything else about why you chose that? Well, I just love her mark. Uh, the, 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 I love the way she uses that kind of quiet, sardonic humor. You know, someone who lived through the Second World War, who lived in Poland through the 20th century, and has that ability to have a beautifully detached worldview while also being, I think, really honest about what it means to feel like, you know, being a human being, you know, living through um, a historical moment like that. And um, and the fact that even, you know, the very last poems she was writing still have a, a quality to them that feels playful to me, which I simply love. I'm just, uh, I'm a huge fan of her work. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Actually, it's funny you brought up the comedian earlier, and this that, this poem changed a ton. Um, in fact, even from when it was published in Beloit Poetry Review, ended up getting clipped quite a bit. It was probably, gosh, I don't know what it would be in a book. It's it's a page, a little over a page, page and a half in the book. Probably would have been four. <laughs> it's amazing to me. Um, and I just needed to kind of listen to it and pare it away. The comedian. The comedian slips the mic from its stand, gathers the excess cord in a loop, and placidly stares at the audience. A few people titter expectantly. He paces, stops, shifts his weight to one foot, and the murmur dies away. The comedian's eyes roam the crowd. He raises an eyebrow. A woman guffaws. A ripple of laughter. Time passes. The audience shift in their chairs, making papery sounds. A man clears his throat. Come on, someone shouts. More minutes pass. A few people shake their heads, chuckling. Others sit stoic, not chuckling at all. Whispers simmer through the crowd and people begin gesturing to one another. Is this the joke? Us? Near the back, someone says a name, Andy Kaufman, as explanation. After seven minutes, the comedian slips the mic back into its holster and whispers, you have been a great audience ever since you were born. His voice breaks. He is still as glass. It seems he might shatter. Instead, he begins to take off his clothes. There are more clothes underneath and then more clothes underneath. Eventually his body begins to peel away and it becomes clear he's not a man, but a slender woman. And then no longer a woman, but a heron. And not a heron, but a blade. And not a blade, but the light it catches as it falls. And soon he is not even that. So what was the the challenge of paring that down for you? Part of it was a love with all these little rituals in stand-up comedy and how formal it is and wanting to play all these little clever games. And so I had almost like bits in here. Um, and But also just, um, I think the poem needed to listen to its own ending if that makes sense. It's about whittling away. And it's just, it, it's not, 
it is a poem that's coming down to a fine point, but also, like you mentioned earlier, it, there's so much kind of disappearing in silence in the book. Um, and the, uh, I think the challenge for me was letting go of a lot of the clever, funny touches and just letting it be about that. You know, just letting it be about someone transforming, you know, through man to woman, to heron, to blade, to light, to disappearance and nowhere. Um, it's maybe all our trajectories, right? The rest is silence. <laughs> Where do you write? Uh, two places. They're both horizontal. I've got a leather couch in my study, and I write generally on my back with my knees up. Um, and when it's summer, I do the same thing in my hammock under my enormous elm tree in my backyard. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, I love, there's a lake not far from our house. We're in Minnesota, after all, the land of 10,000 lakes. And I go walk around it, um, bike around it. In the summer, I swim in it. I also, I read a lot. When I get stuck writing, it's the best thing for me to do is just pick up a book and disappear. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife, Leslie. She, um, she's a fiction writer. She is, and, uh, and also a screenwriter. And um, so she's really good with the big narrative arc. So, and she's also doesn't read a ton of poetry. She's got a great bullshit detector. And she also knows my tendencies if she's like, oh, don't indulge this. You're doing this again. Um, and uh, I love the fact that she hasn't read a ton of poetry. And I think it just kind of, keeps things a little honest and fresh. It's also dynamite because she helps, she's the one who helps me order my books and kind of find the bigger narrative arc out of these families of poems. Um, I honestly couldn't do it without her. How have you dealt with rejection? I guess I listen to it, but not too much would be my answer. Um, obviously you've got to persist. And I think anyone who writes their days when you feel like just a complete fool and you can't do anything right and other days where you feel like blessed you know and and there's grace and light flowing from the pen and you know the truth is always somewhere between the two but i think for me rejection was a big part of the process of learning how to write as someone who didn't get mfa who didn't publish a book until his late 40s if i could get feedback on poems even just a few words scrawled in a margin um it was useful in the process. Um, so I ended up almost cultivating relationships with places that would reject me, but would do it with a little humanity and communication. <laughs> and um, often too, I found out that rejection doesn't mean no, it means not yet. And that's, I think, a really good thing to keep in mind. But you persist, you just have to persist. What is your favorite word? Hinge. I like how you breathe into it. I like its sound. My wife, as my first reader on my first book, did point out to me 
that the word was in there a lot. So we did a control F search of the word document. And I think it was, I think it was in there 17 times <laughs> in a collection that probably doesn't even have 40 poems in it. So I, um, that's just me being completely honest. I don't know if it's the cleverest word, but I think there's something about it being fixed, but also moving. It's such a great liminal space word, you know? It doesn't move itself, but it allows movement. So I guess I do like it in terms of its definition. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Thanks for the conversation. Oh, thank you. This is super fun. You're a wonderful reader. It's it's really, it's a delight. Um, so no, I, I'm the one who's grateful. If you like today's show with Michael Bazette, author of the poetry collection, The Echo Chamber, check out my interview with poet James Longenbach. We talked about his collection, Earthling, how when language sparks, then the ideas become more important, writing from your authentic sound, and the origin of the word earthling, which comes from agriculture. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of nearly 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, and Thriti Umagar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.